it's still really, really hard, no matter how much we do to provide more support, more resources, more education. This is still a terrible illness. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Eating disorders really can be terrible illnesses. So today we're wrapping up our medical series with Dr. Anna Tanner, medical doctor, pediatric specialist, and certified eating disorder specialist and supervisor. Love the conversation with her as she talks about, you know, unfortunately, when we talk about giving hope to adults, there are things that we can turn around for them medically. With kids, some medical complications are not reversible, and systems that are affected are bone density, height, brain growth, and she talks through some examples of how to take care of this when we're teaching our our patients and working with their parents. Speaking of parents, she talks about giving them a mini med school, so this little med school, because developmentally sometimes these kids or adolescents really just aren't able to understand anything more than the basics. And I really took a note on intrusive thoughts versus healthy thoughts, and those are some some tools that we can use or some phrases that can help us identify what some people will call the eating disorder brain or the eating disorder thoughts might be considered intrusive thoughts, according to Dr. Anna Tanner. One of the real highlights here is the American Academy of Pediatrics publication in 2016. I put bullet points in the show notes on family meals are protective, not focusing on shape or weight, not making negative comments, being active for the sake of health, and eating for the sake of nourishing your body. And then really ending, I'm not going to spoiler alert because I think Dr. Tanner's answer to the final question of if you could go back and know what you know now when you first started in the field is something I want to keep replaying over and over and over again. So hope you enjoy this episode. Today we are here with Dr. Anna Tanner and we are really excited to have you. Thanks Beth. I'm really excited to be here. This will be fun. Just to ease into things, mountains or beach? (laughs) Well, I'm in Georgia, so we have great for both. So can I say both? Yes. I'll take it. (laughs) Yeah. So you like either one of them. I think Dr. Voss, that was yours too, wasn't it? Your answer? I think it was mountains by the beach. Yeah. Because if, yeah. (laughs) All right. What about this one? Breakfast or dinner? Ooh, always dinner. I'm like, I love uh, vegetable sides. Anybody who's eaten out with me knows I pretty much always choose based on the sides. Um, So it's a very, Odd quirk of mine, but so dinner, hands down, that's an easy one. Oh, yeah. And as we come into the winter months, going and thinking about even vegetables out of the oven, something, mm, 
sounds so amazing right now. We just spend the whole hour talking about Brussels sprouts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Last night I was out and there was an appetizer called Buffalo cauliflower, crispy cauliflower. It sounded so delicious. <laughs> I didn't get it because it was a full, like that would have been my meal. But anyways, and the last question of the icebreakers is audiobook or paper book? Paper, in fact, hardback. In fact, just released on the edge of the buzz, the better. So awesome. Okay. Great. Well, we're going to kind of maybe bring you back to a moment that because we have newer listeners, maybe new residents or medical providers who are just thinking about coming into the field. But can you share with us a little human piece of like your? a board exam or something that you had to get through or a story about that? Yeah. um, So my early training days were just an amazing time in my life. My husband and I met at Vanderbilt. Um, We both went to med school there, stayed for training, stayed and stayed. I finished on faculty there before we came here to Atlanta. And it was such an amazing decade. I had so many great mentors, several of whom I still get to see in this field. So when I think about my training, you know, there's that hard part of med school and those long nights on residency. And you think about those hard cases. But when I really reflect back, I think most about the people who took time to pour energy and knowledge into me and help shape me into a better pediatrician. And I'm just always so grateful for that time I had there. We had a really amazing adolescent medicine division in Nashville at that time. Got to work with Ovidia Bermudez and Lori Meton and just um, some really amazing people personally and professionally. So when I think about my training, those are the days I think about the most. Awesome. Okay. Well, how did you get into, how did you get into eating disorders? So really, really interesting. I loved adolescent medicine really early on, even in medical school. Like I said, at Vanderbilt, we had a great department of adolescent medicine. Got to work with that team really early on in my career, even before I was done with medical school. But I was really actually interested in different adolescent medicine topics than eating disorders. So I had these great mentors. They were doing all this terrific work. And I'm like, well, I like everything else. You guys can take those eating disorder patients. Uh, up in Atlanta, and we did not have as many resources medically for patients with eating disorders here in the late 90s when we relocated to Atlanta. So I started a freestanding teen center in a private practice right outside of Atlanta and quickly became flooded with eating disorders patients. I mean, you can imagine the late 90s, early aughts, not a lot of medical resources in town for these patients, and I was seeing more and more of them. And Beth, you in particular will know exactly what I'm talking about. These families, it was so hard for them. Every single patient I saw that needed a higher level of care had to leave the state. So I'm in Georgia, very big state in Atlanta, really big city. And every single patient that needed higher level care had to put that kid and their family on a plane and send them out of state for treatment. In addition, we remember these days, none of this was covered by insurance. So I had families that were not only mortgaging their house, but mortgaging it two or three times over. And that led to a lot of problems. They would come back, they'd be able to see me because I would be under their insurance and I could bill for the medical complications of their eating disorder. But they would often so leveraged with their personal resources 
that they couldn't afford to continue therapy and nutrition support, psychiatry support when they came back because it was out of pocket. So it was a really, really hard time to be treating patients because they would delay moving into higher levels of care. They would have to go really far for care. It was hard to keep families engaged. So most of the work I've done the last 20 years has really been about bringing care as close as possible to these kids and families, working to get that care covered medically by insurance, working to kind of advocate for medicine in the care. Because when you're an insurance company, you can argue, right, that they're eating enough or that their thoughts don't sound so bad. But when they have bradycardia or hypotension or growth arrest, you can't argue with that. And if it's secondary to the eating disorder, you have to treat the eating disorder for the medical issue to get better. So a lot of my passion work in the field the last couple of decades has been at changing that. And so it's been a really amazing time to be in the field because we don't see that anymore. More kids, more families can get treatment close to home. We've seen a shift in the field, you know, as FBTs come in, families are part of the solution. They're not part of the problem. Mm. Uh, so these big, big changes, yeah. uh, insurance being, uh, covering treatment, these are just such amazing, such amazing progress in the field. And I think it's really important that we not lose sight of how far we've come. I agree. A couple of decades. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, we, we did connect on that. And I do remember yeah. now that you said that about the, the mindset was, if you care enough, you'll mortgage your house. And these really ritzy treatment centers that had equine therapy and swimming pools. And it was like, it would, that's what the, that's what it was back then. And, and then the families being part of the solution and instead of being part of the, the blame of the problem. So we've come a long way. We have come such a long way. And, and, and I just think it's so important to, to never forget that. I mean, that even when families had to just go, you know, jump these incredible hurdles to get care for their kids that they did, and the hearts are still the same, you know, the path may look different, but the heart of these families for getting care for their children is exactly the same. And we need to remember that the barriers look different. Um, it's so amazing now. Yeah, you know, I talk to these families and I'm like, okay, we're going to stabilize you here and then we're going to put you in treatment here. And then we're going to see you for follow-up here. And we've got every stage covered and we're going to get growth back on track within three months. And, da, da, da. and they're like, well, this still stinks. And I'm like, what do you mean it stinks? It's covered by insurance. It's like a mile from your house. And they're like, but we're going to miss school and we're not going to be able to take our spring break. And I'm like, you know, actually that does stink. Like, and so I think it's really important to remember that this is still a terrible illness. It still derails families. It's still really, really hard, no matter how much we do to provide more support, more resources, more education. This is still a terrible illness. This is still a, like everything's on pause. We've got to battle this together kind of illness. And we can't lose sight of that. We can't think, you know, the more we do, the more they should appreciate it. It's always going to be a terrible illness. And we can't ever forget that, Beth. It's such a really important point. I'm in a location in the nation where we are like you used to be. I have to send kids out of state consistently. And it's so hard to tell a mother and a father that their 12-year-old has to go live somewhere out of state for multiple months, then they cannot visit them, you know, see them every single day. It's a horrible situation to be in. We also continue to have a lot of, of struggles with insurance. And so I know you've done a lot of advocacy work in your area. So I'm wondering for those doctors out there that are still 
pushing and fighting and haven't quite established the wonderful area that like you have, what's some advice for you on how we get started or how we can advocate and get more resources in our area or fight for even just one patient to get insurance covered? Yeah. I mean, that's such a great point, Dr. Voss. I'm really glad you brought it up. I mean, because that is my passion and I charge all of the professionals within my organization. Like that is one of your really big jobs. I mean, your first job always as a medical professional is to keep the patient in front of you safe. Where are issues that have to be identified immediately for safety, but your next job is advocacy. You need to paint a really clear picture of how those eating disorder thoughts are leading to behaviors that are resulting in medical complications. And I think a really important point is that for a children and adolescents, often those medical complications are not reversible. So remember, again, a couple decades ago, we said, you know, with treatment, they reverse. And it created this sense of, well, then if I wait, it's okay, right? If I wait, it's okay, because it'll get better with treatment. So I'm going to try this first. And then if I do all this other stuff, and it doesn't get better, then I'll get treatment. But the medical complications reverse. What we know now, we know really well now is that those medical complications in children, adolescents often don't reverse when they miss that opportunity to grow, because they're energy insufficient, they don't get that time back for growing puberty moves on time marches on when they fail to build bone because they're energy insufficient when they fail to have their brain grow and develop and myelinate. They don't get that time back. And we're also learning that other medical complications, maybe purging, for example, may not be as reversible as we thought, that they might lead to some long-term damage. And so painting that really clear picture of that line between the thoughts generate the behavior, the behavior generates the medical complications. And these are medical complications that put the patient at immediate risk or may not be reversible. The longer this goes on, the worse they're going to be. That's the picture that as medical providers, we have to paint. And it takes a lot of time, right? You have to kind of create your template for that. You have to create your phrases. You have to establish what is going to improve with treatment and kind of the timeline line that it's going to improve. So if you're admitting a patient with bradycardia because they've been having restrictive behaviors, you need to paint that picture that with nutritional rehabilitation, the bradycardia should resume and that you're going to monitor them while they're resuming. So kind of painting that really clear picture, I think helps tremendously when we're talking about insurance advocacy. There's a whole lot also going on on the Hill and we don't want to take away from all of our peers that are doing that actual legislative work, but in a day-to-day, day-in, day-out, that's the work that we can all be doing as as medical providers to these patients. Okay, so I am under the thought process, and this is why this podcast is so helpful to me, to keep me connected with people, is that bone density was really the only medical complication that could not be reversed. So how is that different for both of you? Because you're both adolescent med specialists that, you know, where do we go? How is that different for them? Uh, Dr. Tanner did a great job pointed it out, it's all the development through puberty that you can't get back. So it's bone density, but it's also height. And it's also your myelination of your brain goes up into your mid twenties. That's brain growth is powerful and so important. So I think those are really big complications. And then I think there's also probably a lot that we don't know that, like she said, we're coming out and finding now that we're getting a little bit more data in that the complications are 
greater than we thought. And then my other thought on that was also just relapse. So we know the sooner they get treatment, the less likely they are to relapse, more likely they are to recover. So that in itself just mm-hmm. prevents relapse and more medical complications when they get older. But I don't know if you have additional thoughts, Dr. Tanner. No, that's such a great point, Dr. Voss. The way I think of it, and and Abby, this will make perfect sense to you as well, I'm sure. Children, we forget this all the time, but children are growing. So when we see kids in our families, right? So it's holidays coming up. We're going to get to reconnect, hopefully, with some of our family. We expect the little kids in our lives to have grown since the last time we see them, right? And we know that adolescents are in puberty. So we're all going to have that nephew that we see that's getting like the awkward little mustache and they're trying to decide if they should shave it or not before they see us, right? Because that's normal. And what I think we forget a lot when we see patients in front of us with eating disorders, if they're kids, they're still kids. And if they're adolescents, they're still adolescents. And kids are supposed to be growing and adolescents are supposed to be in puberty. And when we see them in the eating disorders world, we're so much focused on eating disorder diagnosis and tackling that eating disorder diagnosis that we forget the kids are kids and adolescents are adolescents. And when you think about the biology of what's going on, the amount of energy it takes to grow and to go through puberty is tremendous. So I'm going to encourage everybody, look at your healthy kids and your family when you gather over the holidays because they are really, really hungry and they're growing really fast. So for our children and adolescents who are still growing and in puberty that are impacted by restrictive eating disorders, so anorexia, typical anorexia, ARFID, the first way the body saves energy in that energy insufficient state is it turns off growth. And then it turns off puberty. And we forget that all the time. When we're kids, we're like, oh, they don't have bradycardia, so we can wait a little longer. And to Dr. Voss's point, there's so much going on behind the scenes that we don't even understand what the body's turning off as part of that growth process, as part of that pubertal development. So we now have really good evidence that kids that lose bone when they're in those restrictive states, it's because they didn't get the opportunity to build bone. It doesn't reverse. There's not the time to catch up because they're in that stage. Same thing's going on for linear growth. They're in a state where they should be growing really fast in height. They don't have enough energy on board. The body turns that off. There's no catch-up time because time moves on. And we're just trying to get an inkling of what's going on with the brain. The brain actually physically grows till 15 and myelinates till 25. So again, for our younger patients that are energy insufficient, we don't really have a good sense of how much that's depriving the brain of growth. It's a really important point. So if anybody listening to this podcast like only listens this far, but they take away this part, that I would feel like is a victory. And we really need to remember when we're seeing kids and adolescents that they're kids and adolescents and not forget that. I'm thinking about just going back and like making bullet points of everything you have just said. Because something, and I know that we're in very different settings as I'm an outpatient dietitian. I struggle a lot of the time with my adolescent patients for them to understand the severity of what they're doing to themselves, especially like restricting and purging and all that. So do you find that explaining things to them that way is helpful or is it maybe above them a little bit? So early in the illness, you guys have all experienced this. Patients usually don't like anything I have to say. And you guys have all probably had this experience because those eating disorder thoughts are really intrusive. They're really pervasive. Our patients often don't have an ability to recognize those intrusive thoughts and recognize that they're not their healthy thoughts. So I always try to get buy-in, especially with my younger kids about like, 
do you want to grow? Do you want strong bones? If they can't hear it to me, that's just a sign of severity of illness. And back to Dr. Voss's point, I think, you know, a sign of how much support that patient and family is going to need to turn this around. But I definitely use it as an educational opportunity with the community of support that comes in with that child. So if parents or grandparents or whoever is providing care, whoever was concerned enough to bring them in. I try and educate them some on the clock is ticking. And often that's the concern that brought them in. Um, We sometimes get kids who the siblings are passing them in height or they're not growing the way their parents did. Or the mom's like, I started my periods by now and she hasn't started. and I'm really worried. And even though so-and-so told me not to worry, I'm still worried. So I definitely use that education on the front end to create a sense of time is important, especially in children and adolescents, not just to good outcomes, right? You know, decreasing risk of recurrence, getting a a faster uh, time into remission, but also not missing those really important developmental opportunities. If the kids can hear me, great. I'm like, okay, we're going to need less support. They can't hear it. That's a sign that those thoughts are more intrusive, but it's definitely worth educating both the patient and the family. Yeah, I completely agree with that because in the outpatient setting so many times I have the parents come in and they say, well, just, did you explain that to them? You know, whatever it is I explained to the parents, well, did you tell them? Because if they hear that, then they'll change everything. If they hear that their bones are going to be at risk for fractures, they'll start eating. And I'm like, oh, it doesn't work that way. You know, it's really interesting. Lots of times I will talk to the parents alone and then I'll say, Mm -hmm. they'll say, they need to know that. And I'll say, yeah, we should tell them. How about you tell them? Because you've known them for longer than I have. And so that's one of my techniques I love to use. I love to interview my patient, interview with parents, maybe spend some time alone with them, then talk to the parents about my concerns. And what we'll find is the parents will try and explain this to their kids. And if their kids can't hear them, then their parent gets the same level of concern that we have. Like, oh my gosh, I'm really worried about their growing. And they're telling me they're not worried or they don't want to hear it. This is a big problem. And then they turn back, what should we do next, right? So getting the parents, you know, giving them a little mini med school, having them explain Mm -hmm. the complications is a really great technique that I use a lot because then they see what we're seeing. Like, whoa, because if I tell them, they're like, yeah, she didn't like Dr. Tanner or Dr. Tanner is too scary or whatever. If they explain it and the kid can't listen, that's a sign. That's not my kid. My kid would typically get this right away. So something's really wrong. What do we need to do? So I'm so glad you gave us a a little window to to talk about that little technique that I've inadvertently found. I love that. I love that. Yes. But I will (laughs) just say one more thing though. I think we need to be cognizant of is going back to like the brain development that you talked about is sometimes it's appropriate for kids not to get it and not or maybe they get it, but they don't care about it because it's too far in the future. So a lot of times I also have to bring the family back of saying developmentally, it's appropriate that they're not worried that they're going to get a fracture when they're 20. They're more worried about hair is falling out. That's more of a concern to them than the fracture risk. And that's normal. Yeah. And then developmentally we have, what do you do with the the eight or nine-year-old? And that's so different, you know, that, that, yeah. Their bones isn't even on their radar. And sometimes as a dietitian, we see that it's a very kind of, oh, childlike. It, it may be a lot of 
foods that adults would consider to be, quote, bad, but they will just eat less of them or not eat. That's That's a terrific point. Yes, we should never talk about children and young adolescents without talking about adolescent development. We've got those early adolescents who are still very black and white thinkers. Their Mm -hmm. brains aren't capable of abstract reasoning, so everything's super concrete. And in some ways, they can respond to education. They're just going to respond in a really concrete way. So they're not going to take a logical leap of if this happens, then this happens. Mm -hmm. But they can also take that concrete approach of, I'm worried about your bones, so we're going to do this. You know, they can get. Okay. And you've got those mid adolescents who have abstract thought emerging and they're terrible at it. We've all met adolescents who overthink and underthink a problem. This is usually somewhere from 14 to 16. So they kind of get logic, but sometimes it gets kind of lost. And so you do want to those start that education because you can continue to build on it over a very long-term relationship. When they hear it over and over again, they start to connect the dots. So, you know, just like we start teaching reasoning and logic in their writing and all their school skills, we can bring that in. But you're right, it's only those later adolescents who have their own moral compass, who have as good of logic as they're going to have, where we can use those stronger reasonings for accepting care. So it's a really good point. We do have to remember there's a range. So I would like to throw a scenario your way. So I wish, and Beth and I have talked about this before, but I wish we could clone Dr. Voss and you, Dr. Tanner, and have every pediatrician understand this eating disorder side of things and have your wealth of knowledge. And so a lot of times in my outpatient setting, what I get is it could totally be an atypical anorexia situation. The child may fall in an overweight or obese quote unquote, uh, BMI category. And so pediatrician recommends, okay, well, you just need to lose some weight. And then they come to me to talk about how that's going to happen. And it develops so much that the kid, then the child then is like, oh, well, I did such a good job. I've lost 20 pounds. And, you know, like it could be so rapid, like in a month or something like that. So how, because now on the flip side, I need to speak to the pediatrician. So if you could guide me, how, what should I be saying to help these professionals understand? I think a, a couple thoughts in, you know, my super advanced years. One is that I never do the shoulda, woulda, coulda game with kids or providers or families. We need to always remember and be respectful that eating disorders are a very genetically based illness and we are looking at brains that are at risk. So those those actions start and the brain can't put them down, right? And so if it wasn't the pediatrician saying something, it could have been something at school, it could have been something in a magazine, it could have been something a friend or acquaintance said in passing. So I always try and de-escalate kind of any kind of, the pediatrician shouldn't said that of, if it led to an eating disorder, something was going to anyway, is kind of my general thought. And I don't mean to be a a doomsdayer about it. We just need to realize that we live in a very broken world. And for our kids at risk, there are a lot of things out there that could kick off these behaviors. So I kind of always start there. My second thing is, is that you're exactly right, that, you know, a lot of pediatricians have very little training or education on eating disorders. They also have very little education or training on nutrition. And yet there's a lot out there that we need to be worried about higher BMIs and we need to 
get in front of this in early years. My favorite resource on this topic was actually a great paper that came out from the AAP in 2016 on the prevention of obesity and eating disorders. And it has great tips in it, like the takeaway tips at the end of the article. Dr. Vosser, I can send that to you. Um, Maybe Beth, we can add this as a link when you post this. It's such a great resource. And it's just those common sense things that we all know, but we forget to focus on, like focus on the family meal. I mean, in adolescent medicine, the first thing they teach you is family meal is super protective. Kids who eat family meals have higher graduation rates. Kids who eat family meals have lower substance use. Kids who eat family meals are less likely to have eating disorders. So this is kind of this great kind of pullback to the basics. It talks about not focusing on shape or weight, not making negative comments. It talks about being active for the sake of health and eating for the sake of nourishing your body. So just really, really, really great basics. So Abby, I would advise you or any dietitian, it's like, where do I even start talking to pediatricians to have that article and feel free to really share it because it gives pediatricians a way It kind of models really good language and gives them a way to kind of approach whenever they're concerned about a patient or family's eating habits to approach that and without triggering new concerns or new worries. That is like gold. We definitely want to connect that to our show notes. I I was actually looking at something a, a dietitian in the country just sent me another a text that said that they were in a a diabetes echo, which is kind of a group of experts that you can put cases into and they can talk about it. And the comment was how weight centric that was and how all the quote experts were talking about how intermittent fasting is the way to go. And all they need is someone to direct them on what is the right thing to do. So this is just out there so strong and heavy with the experts. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, I think there's just a lot of weight stigma, weight bias out there. But again, I'm old enough where we've seen other phases of the same thing, right? You know, with diet foods and then, you know, different fad diets. I mean, there's always going to be something. And I think kind of going back to those core protective behaviors, core ways of building solid self-esteem and resilience. Those are the things that we need to be focusing on when we're looking at preventive measures. It's not there's one perfect thing to avoid. It is what are the positive, protective, educational modeling things that we can do as an eating disorders community to build these healthy relationships and this healthy respect. So it's a really good topic. We could probably talk about that one all day. All day long. <laughs> yeah. Um, think, Abby, you know, back to your point of a pediatrician, if they're worried about a kid, not only sharing those good common sense tools, but also, you know, growing children in general should not lose weight unless medically they have a medical issue for which weight loss is indicated. And that will occasionally happen. And then it should only be done under the close auspices of someone who understands the medical complications of weight loss, because they do need to be monitored for those same medical complications that we see in our patients with restriction. So we want to make sure that they don't get bradycardia, hypotension, hypoglycemia, that they lose weight so fast that their growth velocity slows. So it's really, really important to remember that there may be occasionally a a medical issue 
where where that's recommended, but broad sweeping statements on weight or on diet or on diet approaches are things we generally want to avoid. Instead, we want to model really good balance, right? What I hear a lot of in that situation is, well, we don't want the child to lose weight. Can we keep them stable where they are? But is that accurate? Yeah, that's kind of a, it's a, and Dr. Voss may want to speak to this. We talk a lot of times about letting kids continue to grow. And so we're focusing less on weight loss, right? But we're allowing them to continue growing. And again, that usually goes back to that balance of family meals, getting in a good breakfast, getting in a good lunch, being active most days, you know, not worrying so much about the content of the day or even the content of the week, but the overall balance of diet and exercise in day-to-day life. Does that make sense? So kind of, again, getting back to those core basics is a really good way to approach that. Very well said. Yeah. And focusing more on what are those positive changes you can make within the family system rather than what can we take away or what's the negative. So adding in fruits and vegetables rather than taking away sweets would be an example. But yeah, sometimes there's weight maintenance, but it's because it's less about the weight, right? Just like Dr. Tanner said. Yeah. I I mean, I'm I'm sharing this with you all, and I can share it in the show notes, but I loved this. If your child is quote underweight versus overweight, what do you do? And there's the five bullet points on each side. If they are, I'm not going to say it overweight again, that can be a stigmatizing word. I understand it. Prioritize their 20 to 30 minutes for family meals, overweight, underweight, overweight, do not discuss weight, underweight, do not discuss weight. Overweight set a meal and snack schedule. Underweight set a meal and snack schedule. Overweight teach kids to listen to their bodies. Underweight teach kids to listen to their bodies. Overweight start with small portions. Yeah, and start with small portions. So, and allow kids to to eat according to their hunger. So, love that. I do too. That's Um, Dr. Josh Woolrich. You have such a beautiful way of wording things, Dr. Tanner, and have this perspective. I think from treating teens and adolescents for so long that you can see more of the, like you said, the preventative moving on and how that affects them later. So I'm really curious how you would define recovery of an eating disorder. (laughs) I know it's a hard question. question. You know, recovery is a process, not like a a, a stop. And I fully believe that all patients with eating disorders can make a full and complete recovery and live a robust and meaningful life. So it's really important to kind of start there. Eating disorders work is really hard work. And I tell families, you know, entering treatment, expect two, three, four months of really hard work. Okay. Just like you're going to have to get all these skills, all this education. You have to learn about those thoughts, learn about how to have skills against those thoughts. And you're going to have to practice, practice, practice. It's going to be harder than like the hardest math class if you've taken any semester of school, right? It's just like, it's that kind of roll up your sleeves, hard work. But if we do our job, we should be in a place in two, three, four months where most of my medical concerns are less. Okay. So we're seeing pretty much normal vital signs, pretty much normal labs. If there's a hormonal interruption that we're seeing that correct. So for girls, their periods, guys, testosterone, signs and symptoms that if they're a growing kid, we're seeing signs that we're getting back on track for resuming growth, that we're starting to allow some activity that is coming from a place of health and strength. 
Okay. And that the thoughts and behaviors need less interruption, less correction, less support. And anytime any of us is learning to do something new, we're pretty bad at it. I think we we expect perfection after treatment all the time, which is so ridiculous. Like I'm horrible at anything new I try. I don't know about you guys, but I'm really, really terrible. But it takes a lot of practice, right? So like, you know, when our kids start an instrument, we expect them to be terrible for a long time. But the more they practice, the better they get or they start a sport. We should expect the same with eating disorder skills. So what I tell them is that first year is going to be really bumpy because you're going to come up against some challenges and your behaviors are going to be stronger than your skills, but we're going to learn from it. We're not going to hide it. We're not going to beat ourselves up. We're just going to lean into it and learn from it and say, like, what what went on there? Because the more we can go through those bumps and come out on the other side and learn from them, the better you're going to get at going over the bumps, right? And so the second year, the bumps are less. We get through them with more ease. And then that third year, we're really moving along. So within that kind of that first two to three years after really intensive treatment, we should see a kid and a family that have pretty strong skills, are pretty resilient in their skills. We're not seeing medical issues show up very often. We've seen most of those resolve. We're back on track for growth and development, and we're engaging in things in a meaningful way. Some kids want to get back to physical activity. Some kids want to work. Some kids want to get back to a hobby, or they're doing something totally new that they always wanted to try and they didn't give themselves permission to do. So it's really important to remember they're also growing and developing adolescents. They may have total changes in their life in the time that we're treating them. So those are my markers of recovery, kind of complicated, maybe a long answer to your question, but it's, there's a lot of depth and breadth to what we're looking for. It was a loaded question. So (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a wonderful, beautiful answer. I love it. So what about those families though, that aren't willing to put in the work? And this is one of those things that I always struggle with. And you guys probably do too, Beth and Abby, that You see this kid that has a lot of potential for recovery and you're trying to treat the child or the adolescent, but the parents aren't on board. And so how do you move forward when your definition of recovery might look different than what the parents does? Yeah, I think it's always just so important whenever we're talking about children, adolescents, to remember that the community of support that's bringing them in is worried about them or else they wouldn't be in front of you. I mean, they wouldn't be keeping that appointment. They wouldn't be calling you. They wouldn't be driving or logging on or whatever they're doing to get to that appointment. There is a part there that wants help. Okay. There are barriers to accepting help, what help looks like to them. Their path through that is going to be really different for every family. So lots of times when I meet a family, I'm like, okay, if we do this, this, and this, we're going to be done really fast. But that doesn't line up with what they can do or what they want to do or what they need to do first. And I think it's always really important to remember there are a lot of other things going on for families and for kids. They've got other kids. They've got jobs. They've got parents. They've got responsibilities. So it's also okay to remember that there are going to be a lot of paths to recovery. And as long as a patient is medically safe and psychiatrically safe, it's okay to walk along beside that kid and family for a while while they find their path, right? Because eventually, if you're really worried about them and they're not making progress, 
they're going to start asking for other ideas or solutions, right? So this is where you want to stay aligned as a treatment team. You want to make sure that nutrition and therapy and psychiatry and medicine are all talking. You're going to make sure that there's not an emergency danger sign that anybody's missing and you need to get beside them. Okay. And you need to kind of let them work through their process of whatever it is they need to do, whatever it is they need to evaluate or read or who they need to talk to, to get to that place where they can move forward. So there is sometimes a stall at the beginning of starting care. And I think it's really important to kind of recognize the stall and sit with them in the stall, okay? And we see this all the time in pediatrics. So I don't know why we expect it to be different in eating disorders pediatrics. Like in pediatrics, we have parents come to us, I'm worried about how Johnny's doing in school. What do you think's going on? What might be his attention? Have you thought about testing? No, we don't want to do testing. We don't want to put a label on him. We don't want to do medicine. Okay, well, let's talk about these things. And you have, right? So we're used to having a lot of conversations with that community of support and waiting to be ready to make changes. So I think it's also really important, like eating disorder treatment, it's really tough work on everybody. Sometimes there's going to be a pause before that work starts and we have to be comfortable sitting that pause as long as it's safe to do so. And going back to Abby's question, like if she's going back to the doctor and, and I loved Dr. Tanner, how you talked about expect two to three or four months of really hard work, harder than any math class or whatever, you know, you're putting it into something tangible for them or, you know, if you know them, then it might be not be math class. It might be something else, but then that whole two to three years, like it's not, you're here, we're going to take care of this. And tomorrow you're going to, or, you know, in one month, this is going to be behind us. So it's really kind of digging in, but also, you know, going back to the doctor and saying to that doctor who says, well, there's no problem that this child has lost this kind of weight. And it's really a struggle for me, probably for Abby and many of us. And sometimes they'll go for a second opinion, which is fine. I'm, this is actually kind of going off of Dr. Voss's question too, is sometimes people leave us and go get a second opinion. And mm-hmm. that pause might be them finding a different way. And that next provider, we've already brought them as far as we can bring them. And that next provider can either take it and bring them further, or if they're not eating disorder informed, then they'll work it out amongst themselves. It's just so hard to see when you can see the writing on the wall. And and, I think, and, and this, Beth, kind of goes back to my initial point is 20 years ago, there were so many external factors that we point to as the roadblocks, right? It's not covered by insurance, travels too far. Nobody, no, nobody takes kids or adolescents. Nobody takes boys, right? So there are a million roadblocks we could point to. And as we have worked as a community to decrease those roadblocks and worked on early recognition and getting patients into treatment earlier to prevent these medical complications, we need to remember that we have a sense of urgency because we understand how hard the work's going to be. We understand those irreversible medical complications, but that patient and that family has not been doing this for decades and decades. <laughs> like some of us, mm-hmm. it's going to take them a while to get there. And I think that's so important. We can't just give them a roadmap of here's what you need to do. And even sometimes when we're trying to give them information, it can come across that way. I mean, it's so much to learn so fast. It can be really scary. Mm -hmm. And there's so much stigma and shame. Mm -hmm. It's not 
parents go home and they tell their preschool group like, oh, guess what Johnny got diagnosed with today? And they've got yeah. a bunch of trolls and everybody's running carpool for them. They're often feeling very alone in that as well. And so I really see that until we decrease shame and stigma, these conversations about starting care, accepting help, what does the care journey look like, are going to remain difficult because there's going to be a lack of information and education out there in the community. The more families in treatment and recovery and patients can be more transparent about the journey, the more we're going to have education, the more the pediatricians are going to get, they're going to be like, oh, I have three dozen kids in my practice that all have eating disorders. And these are all things that they say would and would have been helpful. That's how pediatricians learn. That's how families get into care quickly and accept care quickly is from learning from the people around them. So it's really still a barrier and it's really going to take continued work as a field to see that change. But, you know, we've seen a lot of change in 20 years, maybe in the next 20 years, it'll be gone. Won't that be great? Mm -hmm. It's helpful, Dr. Tanner, to hear you explain it so calmly, like, of course, parents are going to have these reservations. Of course, pediatricians are, you know, going to be a little confused about it at first because they just don't know always. So that makes me feel better. I was feeling a little bit like on an island, like, how do I get these parents to understand? But everything you have said is so helpful. And I do have kind of a a wrap up for you, which is a loaded question. So feel free to take your time. But I think this can bring a lot of insight for newer professionals listening. If you could take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Oh gosh. Yeah. I think we kind of spoke to that at the beginning you know, the resources that we have now are, are so different. And we've learned a lot of science in the last couple of years. I mean, the information we've gathered about brain development and bone development and linear height is really important and informative. The most valuable lessons I've learned have come from my patients. I think all of us in the field all need to stay humble. They're going to tell us some hard things sometimes. All of their recovery journeys are different. And we always have to remember that we're people treating people and trying to do the best with the current knowledge that we have. And I think it's really hard when you're very passionate and you're in this field to just want to help and and want to help and to just remember that you know we're people giving the news there are people receiving the news we're people offering the help there are people accepting the help and just to really be very very humble no matter how long we do it no matter how much we learn no matter how much science there is it's so important and I wish I had known how little I knew. And in 20 years, another 20 years, I'm probably going to look back and be like, I can't believe I didn't know that. Like, how did I not know that? And when I get to a place when I'm treating a patient in a family, there's always that visit where they're not afraid to see me anymore. They're not anxious about the visit. They're not worried about what I might say or what I might find. And they realize that I'm hilarious and very, very nice, I realize they don't need me anymore. And I get sad for a minute because I've come to care for them so much. And then I get really happy. They don't need me anymore. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, and they're like, they're kind of sad and scared for a minute. And then they're really happy. And this is this great moment because we realize we're just two people. We've been working together through something really hard. There've been hard conversations. There've been hard days. There's been a 
why don't they understand and listen? Or why do they keep being so mean to me? All those hard moments. And you get to the end and you realize there's somebody I care about. There's somebody who cared for me and we got through this together. And so I always love when I get to see patients and families to get to have that last visit where I'm like, they don't need me at all. And I get to say goodbye. I really, really love that. And so the thing I wish the most was I wish I had understood what that felt like at the beginning. Because knowing that that's your, when you said, what am I looking for, for markers of recovery? That's really my marker of recovery. When we can have that moment, I'm like, they really don't need me. We're, we're done. So I hope that that helps a little bit with the newer providers when they start to think about what they're really doing for their work in this field. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say for dietitians, I think that moment for us is going from, I hate you, you're ruining my life to, okay, you know, I had like three meals and three snacks. It was a fabulous day. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Tanner, so much. We will put the references in the show notes and we just really appreciate your time today and sharing all of your knowledge. Be humble. All the years we combined in this call have been working together. There's a lot that we don't know and that we'll still learn. And what we learn, we learn from our patients a lot. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.